And we're live. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 136 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. And, I'm, uh, I see snow. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. Yeah, it snowed last night here, too. Kind of crazy. It's not terribly cold out, though, so it's it's not bad. Uh, snow, I mean, like five flakes, so we're not getting too much right now. Oh, well, I'll ship you some. Uh, we also have a special guest this week, and that is Neil Ford. Hello. I'm in Atlanta, and I'm sweating. Now you you've been on the show twice, I think, Neil. Uh, uh, this could will be, be your yeah. third time. Do you want to quickly introduce yourself, though? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, I'm Neil Ford. My title is a director, software architect, and meme wrangler at ThoughtWorks, which is an international software consultancy. We specialize in really hard kind of software projects, and we're kind of known for being on the cutting edge of interesting stuff in software. Martin Fowler's our chief scientist. Uh, we're really into microservices and all the, the new cool stuff out in the world. Nice. Can you get microservices on Amazon Prime? Don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> there is actually a video. So you, you joke, but there is a video, but I think it's on O'Reilly, not uh, Amazon Prime yet. <laughs> Free startup ideas from, from Charles Maxwood. There we go. There go. Yep, there you go. Here's a fresh new microservice. We don't know what it does, but it got to you in two days. All right. Well, uh, we are talking this week about efficient engineering practices for software projects. Yes. I, I'm thinking to myself, may, maybe I can hand wave over this just a little bit more. It's a rather broad topic. Do you kind of want to give us an idea of what you're thinking here for efficient engineering practices? Yeah. So, so I'll, I have a story to tell that will, that will lead me nicely into this topic. So back in the uh, 60s and 70s on big software projects, it used to be considered the best practice that everyone would go off and work in isolation, work on their part of the system, and then the very last part of the project was the integration phase of the project, where everybody would take all their code and try to get all the work together. And not surprisingly, that was a pretty horrible part of a lot of projects. If you look at software engineering techs of the 60s and 70s, there's always this big, giant, amorphous, uh, ill-defined integration phase at the end where we try to get everything to work together. So I worked on teams like that in the 90s, and at that time of the project, I just went on vacation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the time to go on vacation because that was no fun. I was going to well, say my brothers played football, and they had this concept of Hell Week where they'd do like four workouts a day for two hours each. Yeah. I think I'd rather do that than try and integrate a whole <laughs> yeah. bunch of people's software. Absolutely. And as projects get more and more complicated, of course, it just goes up. The, the complexity of that goes up exponentially. Yeah. Well, so in the early 90s, uh, there were a bunch of software developers who had collectively worked on hundreds of software projects. And they were frankly kind of depressed about the state of software development. Because one of these guys said that 
whichever software development process you picked was not a good predictor of project success, that you could flip a coin and that was a good predictor of project success is one of these dozen different processes they had running around. And so what they did was say, well, we've got a lot of collective experience on software projects. Why don't we build software just based on the stuff that we know have worked really well in the past? And we'll just go as far to the extreme as we can on that. That was, of course, the extreme programming guys. So they were the guys that identified test-driven development because they realized on projects where we've been really aggressive about testing, we tend to have higher quality code. Seems to be a correlation there. So what's the most aggressive possible version? Let's write tests before we write code. We'll call it test-driven development. Well, integration is one of the things that these guys identified because they noticed that on projects where they had been really eager to do integration, they had a lot fewer integration-based headaches than on projects where they put it off for a really long time. And so they coined this idea of continuous integration. Everybody commits to the trunk at least once a day. Now, people who are in traditional projects heard that and thought that was the worst idea they'd ever heard because, like you said, everybody knows integration is the worst part of the project. If you force everybody to do that every day, it makes every day the worst day ever. Well, it's, th- it's not terrible if you're the first person to integrate. Well, exactly. But you don't want to be the last. That's true. <laughs> that is true. Somebody moved your cheese and left something else there for you. Exactly. So what the XP guy stumbled onto is this really interesting principle that kind of pervades a lot of the engineering practices in the software world that it seems like a software project, as it gets bigger, that the amount of effort that you expend to do things like merges or or things like that should get linearly bigger as time goes by, as you get linearly more code. But the longer you put stuff like that off, it seems like it grows at an exponential rate. And so the longer you put those things off, they kind of fester. And I have a theory as to why that is, because if you look at the real world in physics, there's actually a very narrow degrees of freedom that things have in the real world, like in buildings. So there are not a lot of options. You know, boards can't suddenly join in a way that you've never seen before because they're, you know, they're limited to physics. The software components are very soft and squishy, and so they interact with one another in all sorts of unusual, unexpected ways. And so the more you allow them to kind of uh, interact in an uncontrolled way, the more pain kind of grows up. And so what the, the XP guys stumbled onto is this idea of continuous integration. Let's integrate early and often, and that ends up solving a bunch of these integration-based headaches. But then people very quickly built machinery to handle this chore for them because it's such a useful thing on projects. And so they built continuous integration servers. In fact, ThoughtWorks, the company I worked for, built the first and open source, the very first continuous integration server, which was Cruise Control. And it was based on pain they were feeling on a specific project they were working on. They couldn't get good, consistent builds. And so they said, well, let's build a, an integration machine that handles making the official build. And so but now there's an entire product category around this idea of continuous integration servers. So we don't even think of continuous integration as a practice so much anymore. We think of it as a tool that you apply on a project to get uh, to automatically run tests and to make sure all your code works together, et cetera. But I do a lot of work in the uh, continuous delivery space. And continuous delivery is, of course, as its name suggests, about being able to deliver software in a more or less continuous fashion using a bunch of engineering 
practices. But really what continuous delivery is, is about efficient engineering practices for software projects. Because part of what continuous delivery wants to do is turn software more into an engineering discipline, which means predictability, which means that we have uh, well-known best practices that work across different kinds of projects. And so that's part of the effort that continuous delivery puts in. And one of the things that continuous delivery tries to address is this idea of continuous integration of practice and places where projects have accidentally thrown it away. And so one of the things that we look for on projects is when have the engineering practices that people have taken on started interfering with what their ultimate goals are that they're trying to achieve. Because a lot of times you can micro-optimize around one thing, but overall it's hurting the overall workflow in your project because you're too focused on one small thing. So let me give you an example of that. Mm-hmm. And this is and this is a visual that I sent to you guys, uh, and I don't know if you want to point people to this. It's a picture on uh, Martin Fowler's website because he's written about this topic quite a bit. Uh, if you do the search for Martin Fowler and feature branching, it's his blog entry. Ooh, on this is the one I wanted to fight with you about. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about feature branching. And so if you look at, so here's the problem, and you don't have to have the visual to to picture this because many of you live this problem on a daily basis. So let's say that you're using some sort of sane version control that handles things like uh, branches gracefully and and merges, et cetera. So, you know, it's a version or Git or a commercial one like Perforce or uh, one of those guys. And you have a main line of development that's going on. And uh, there are a couple of features that may or may not make it into the next release of your software. So one of the ways you can model this problem is this engineering practice called feature branching. Use the, the branching feature in your version control so that you can mo- have those in-flight features live on branches so that they're not part of your main line. And at the end of the project, you can decide we'll merge those in or not, depending on whatever the business decides about the, the legitimacy of this feature. And so let's say that you start this this process and you have two in-flight speculative features, uh, one that's being managed by Professor Plum and the other that's being managed by Reverend Green. Now, as time goes by, both Professor Plum and Reverend Green know that you should periodically pull from the trunk because they're living on a branch and things are still happening on trunk. And so they know that periodically I should pull from trunk and handle any kind of little merge conflicts that come up there. And so let's say a few weeks go by, maybe a couple of months go by, and it's decided, you know what, we love Professor Plum's feature. We want it in the next version of the code base. And so Professor Plum pushes to Trunk and performs what we refer to as a merge ambush on Reverend Green. (laughs) Because Reverend Green didn't do anything wrong. He just came into work on Monday morning. He did SVN up and now slam. He's got two months worth of merge conflicts to deal with. From Professor Plum. Yep. So he got ambushed by this, which is bad. But this is not the only bad thing about this. Because what happens if on the very first day of that branch, Professor Plum started making profound changes to the customer class? And on his first day of his branch, Reverend Green started making profound changes to the customer class in the opposite direction. They've essentially been coding in isolation from one another for a couple of months, and now Reverend Green has a terrible decision to make. Do I go back and undo all of my changes to customer and reconcile it with Professor Plum, essentially undoing all that work, 
or this is what I'm terrified of, do I just create my own copy of the customer class that preserves all of my changes and then let those two things diverge into the future forever on after? So here's the problem, and this is finally, after 15 minutes, gets to the thrust of my topic here today about efficient engineering practices. What we've done here is traded one engineering practice for another one. We've traded feature branching for continuous integration, and it turns out it was a bad bargain. Because not only did we give up continuous integration, we gave up three really valuable things by doing feature branching. So let's talk about the three bad things about feature branching, and then I'll talk about some alternatives. Okay. The first bad thing is the merge ambush, the inevitable big scary merge that happens when you finally merge your feature branch back into your trunk. Can I tell a story? Sure. So uh, I had a client that I was working for, what, last summer? It might have even been – no, it wasn't this summer. It was last summer. Uh, Anyway – what happened was I kind of pretty quickly became the pet projects guy for the CTO that I was working for. And what that meant was if he wanted something specific and kind of outside the normal development of things that went into the core of the project, I got saddled with those, which was fine because a lot of more fun. Mm-hmm. So one in, one of those in particular was statistics on travel information because it was a travel website and he wanted all of these graphs built up based around the data that they were pulling in from all of their sources. Well, the issue was that I was moving ahead on my stuff, but when I was done, I'd have to merge it back from my branch into the other code. And this would happen every week and I wasn't working more than like 15 hours a week. And so I would, I would get things done and then I'd go merge it. And then when I'd go to merge it, things would have changed out from under me on the master branch. So I'd get that, that merge ambush that you're talking about. Yep. So that next week I would go and I would fix the merge issues because I'd merge everything and I'd fix the merge issues. And then I would have to actually go and make some new changes throughout that week. And by the time I got done, I'd hit a new merge ambush. And yep. after about a month of that, they came to me and said, why aren't you getting anything done? <laughs> right? Because it was never in a working state on the main branch for them to actually go in and do something with it and see that it was actually working and behaving the way they wanted it to. So then this gets exactly to my point. You were doing a lot of work. It just wasn't very efficient. No, not at all, because the work was essentially fix what was already working before over because over somebody over else again. moved it. Yeah. Yep. So that's the big first problem with feature branching is the merge ambush, and you're constantly chasing that, particularly when you're in a situation like you're talking about. I'll give you a solution to that problem, a direct solution to that problem in just a second. But let's talk about the other two problems that feature branching introduces. The, the, the second one is no opportunistic refactoring. So if you're an agile kind of engineering shop, one of the things you're supposed to do is if you run across something, a little flaw in code, you're supposed to refactor that and fix it as you move along uh, and kind of make leave the world a better place than you found it. But if you're living on a feature branch, you get punished for those kind of refactorings. Because if you're on a feature branch and you discover that somebody has misspelled the customer class and you go and change that everywhere, you've incidentally touched 40 files, which is going to make your merge uh, problem that much worse. Mm-hmm. 
So it actively discourages you from doing this thing would really like to encourage people to do, but that discourages people. And so, in fact, if you use one of the ancient horrible tools that still imposes that pre-90s workflow on you, there's a tool by IBM called ClearCase that forces every developer onto their own branch, and then you have to handle the merge stuff at the very end. Nobody that uses ClearCase ever refactors anything because they're punished so hard for doing any kind of refactoring. Well, a lot of those so, renames, too, are handled like they have built-in refactorings in a lot of the IDEs and stuff. So it's mostly automatic. But, yeah, then you have that merge issue. And all you really did was make one little change with the tool, and you don't even know the impact because it really doesn't matter. It's all incidental. It's just a name. Right. But until you have to merge it all back together. So the third thing, the third problem is a problem that you were also running into. So let's say you're in the Professor Plum Reverend Green world and the big boss comes to you one week and says, okay, I want to see a version of the product, just the trunk, just Plum, just Green, and both Plum and Green go. Well, now you have to handle three merge conflicts because you have trunk. You have to merge in plum, you have to merge in green, and then merge in both of them, get that all to work. And if you come back a week later and he wants to see the same thing, you have to do that exact same thing over and over again. So let's talk about a way to solve this problem. So the the fundamental problem we have here is we've made a bad trade. We've traded away continuous integration for feature branching. Let's not do feature branching. So let's talk about a whole set of engineering practices that have become more and more popular uh, called trunk-based development. You can do a Google search. No, on no. <laughs> <laughs> you can do a Google search on trunk-based development. There's a lot of writing that's been done about this. Uh, Facebook very famously does this. Uh, well, in fact, a lot of big places do trunk-based development. And in fact, trunk-based development in conjunction with. So let me talk about one of the things that we do in trunk-based development that solves exactly the problem you were just having, and that's this idea of feature toggles. Or feature flags. Ah, uh, there we go. See, that is one of the issues that we're talking about because ultimately my issue with trunk-based development, and to be perfectly honest, this is mostly what I do these days because it's myself and maybe one other developer working on the same code base, not necessarily at the same time even, mm-hmm. and feature branches is more overhead than it's really worth for us, But and, and they're my projects, so... You know, I can kind of do whatever I want there. But the flip side there is, is that the issue that I've had is, yeah, you get anything experimental in there that's going to break the page or break the build or make people's stuff not work the way that it should. And it breaks everything for everybody everywhere. But the, but that's part of the, the magic trick of feature toggles is you don't leave something toggled on that's broken yet. So part of the, the, so let's talk about feature toggles. So the idea behind a feature toggle is, uh, you have a configuration file that goes along with your application that basically says this feature is on or off. And now every time your application needs to do something, it checks to see, should I show this versus that? So for example, in your user interface, you might have an if condition that says, if this feature is on, show this, otherwise show this other thing. On the server side, you may have a conditional that says, if this feature is turned on, then execute this workflow, otherwise execute this other workflow. 
so let's talk about feature toggles in the Reverend Green Professor Plum world that we were just living in. And in fact, the world that you were just living in and the story that you were just talking about. So let's say rather than doing a feature branch, they had both done feature toggles, a Reverend Green feature toggle and a Professor Plum feature toggle. Uh, the other one always leaves the other guy's feature toggle turned off. So as long as their code compiles, then everything is cool. Professor Plum never has to interact with Reverend Green's code because it's always behind conditionals that they never execute. Uh, and as long as everything compiles and all the unit tests pass, everything is cool. But on the very first day, they both touch the customer class. They get a merge conflict because they're still living on trunk. And so continuous integration is back in force. And so I will argue that feature toggles and trunk-based development help you find those kind of conflicts as early as possible. Now, I'm partially playing devil's advocate here, but two things come to mind here. One is, doesn't this make your code a little bit more complicated? Because now you have these conditionals built in there that are just turn this on, turn this off. It is. So here's our perspective on feature toggles. Feature toggles are purposeful technical debt to support engineering practices like continuous delivery. And so one of the rules of feature toggles, as soon as you've figured out yes or no, you strip out all the other conditionals. So what we do on our projects is anytime we play a story card that has a feature toggle on it, we also insert a downstream story card that says remove this feature toggle. We don't know exactly when that's going to be played, but it is now in the set of playable story cards now. And as soon as we, as eagerly as we can, we're going to strip that out. So this is purposeful temporary technical debt that we've added to support a bunch of other beneficial things. I want to restate how very important it is to remove these feature toggles because I've worked with code bases that have had 20 years of feature toggles in them. So when when I first heard about, you know, feature, feature, not feature branching, but uh, developing this way, I just threw up a little bit in my mouth. Because I've lived through that where people did that and did not clean up after themselves. Well, that That's the classic blunder here is putting them in there and then getting too much of a hurry to take them out. So that's a bad thing. So there is a certain level of engineering maturity that's required to do this well. But that's part of what continuous delivery is really trying to, to promote is this idea that, look, we're never going to be a respected engineering profession if every time we say something's hard, we don't do it. This is one of my pet peeves about software is people say, well, you know, that's hard, so we don't want to do it. You know what else is hard? Open heart surgery is hard. <laughs> if doctors were like software people, we wouldn't have open, open heart surgery now because it's hard. But so it does require a certain level of engineering maturity to be, to be able to put them in and also take them out. You said classic blunders and my brain went straight to Princess Bride. You fell for <laughs> one of the classic blunders. Exactly. The first well-known is don't put in feature toggles unless you plan to take them out. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's the first blunder of feature toggles. Uh, so uh, the other thing that is related to this, and this was the other thing that came to my mind, is that in some cases you're going to have to put feature toggles into your data models and into your controllers and into your views. I mean, this is an iOS show and you have all of these pieces to your app. So I could see that you could wind up with a few up to maybe a dozen or so feature toggles in place in different places to make sure that these things don't turn on and impact things until you're ready for them to. So if you're doing that, how do you keep track of all of that? So that's another part of the the idea of, of continuous delivery is that the projects that are doing this, they have a deployment pipeline, which is kind of like the continuous integration server on steroids. 
that will, as soon as you make a change to something, will pick up and run that against all the possible affected ecosystems to make sure it runs sets of tests against them to make sure you haven't broken stuff. So a couple of other things about feature toggles. Don't create feature toggles that depend on each other because that's the road to insanity. Uh, the other thing is you don't want a bunch of these at a time. So this is like three or four or five at a time, not 20 or 30 at a time because they are hard to keep track of. And the last thing you want to do is not understand your code base. There are also places that have taxonomies of feature toggles. So operations will have one set of feature toggles. They manage uh, application development. will have another completely different set of feature toggles they'll manage. But you're right. In a lot of cases, because you have very distributed applications now, it's a coordination across all these guys about what things are toggled on versus what things are toggled off. So one of my former colleagues, Paul Hammond, has actually written a piece of open source software that you store configurations in a Git repo. And when the application starts up, it checks that Git repo to see what kind of configuration it should take on. And so everything is always consistent because you have a single source of truth for what should be turned on versus turned off. And he just manages that stuff with tags. That makes sense. I, I want to go back to continuous integration just for a minute. Sure. Um, I think most people, when I talk to them about continuous integration, usually it's on the web. So there really isn't a build step in the same way there is for iOS, though oh. I could definitely see that as part of continuous integration in iOS. Uh, so essentially, when we talk about continuous integration, it's code for we have something that automatically runs our tests. Is there more to it than that? Well, really what continuous integration is supposed to be is the official canonical build. This right. is the official, if you ever get, well, it works one way on my machine versus another machine. The only one that it counts on is a continuous integration server because the idea was that's the pristine environment that doesn't have email and, you know, browser bookmarks and other junk on it. It just has stuff that should be as part of the software. So it's the official canonical build. But then you get into deployment pipelines and continuous delivery, and that actually is a whole series of steps that you can put your code through. So it acts like continuous integration in that it triggers upon change. But then after it runs a bunch of unit tests, it'll promote that and try to build out, so we'll use Puppet and Chef to build out realistic environments and run tests over those and, and try to build more and more sophisticated. So it's a, a gated process where you know every gate is more, more sophisticated stuff you're doing to your code to get it live. So that's more common in these kind of continuous delivery kind of environments is to have not just a continuous integration server, but a deployment pipeline that manages a lot of this coordination around, I've made a change here, let's make sure, uh, particularly if you're in a continuous deployment environment, you want to make sure as you make changes that you're not breaking stuff that's running in production. If it's going to go live, you know, in an hour to production, I want some good uh, reassurances that I'm not breaking the world. Right. The other thing that I want to put out there is just that what we've been talking about with efficient engineering practices is mostly just not causing other people pain. But in my experience, to be the most efficient as an engineering team, it really boils down to communication. So I'm wondering, do do these practices tie into communication some way other than just, you know, tell people this is turned off or am I am I missing something there? Or, or those other practices that we can talk about in a minute? Well, there's some other practices around that you, you can certainly uh, use for that. But see, a lot of our projects, we just assume that work, new work is going to be done under a mm -hmm. feature toggle. So it's a, a common thing to see, you know, whatever work streams are going on are being done under feature toggles. And it makes it much easier to do things like continuous deployment because you can just roll stuff out. 
because nobody's interacting, you know, people are not seeing that feature yet because it's still toggled off. So you do feature toggles and then trunk-based Yes. Yep. So let's talk about once you switched over to that mindset, and it really is a mind shift to start thinking that way about doing that. Let's talk about some superpowers that this gives you. Because one of the nice things about adopting some of these engineering practices like this is all of a sudden you can deliver new superpowers to your business, like A-B testing now. is very easy. Oh, right, because you can just turn the tests on and off. In fact, most of the feature toggle frameworks will allow you to do A-B testing so that you can do a gradual release to your users, so that 10% of your user gets the feature toggled on, but 90% get it toggled off so that you can do experimental development and in fact, support what we're talking more and more about is this idea of hypothesis-driven development. Because so you you guys are all familiar with the, the agile world and the, the kind mm-hmm. of agile way of thinking about things. One of the things that's always bothered me about agile is what are you supposed to do when you start an agile project? You get a whole bunch of people in a room and they all create the big giant backlog, and then you prioritize the backlog and you start hacking away at it. Oh, you should see my shirt. <laughs> Let me see if I can turn on my video. It says the backlog is a lie. Yep, I see that. <laughs> it has well, cake scratched out. So if you're familiar with Portal, yeah. Yep. So yeah, what, anyway. what is what is that backlog generation? But a big giant, big design up front exercise. Yeah. So once you have things like feature toggles in place, you can actually start approaching things differently. And this is this idea of hypothesis driven development. So rather than create this big giant backlog, create an environment that makes it really easy to do experiments with your users. And instead of this big uh, brainstorming exercise, what you're doing is coming up with hypotheses. Do you think users will like this more or this? Put it out live and then find out what they actually like better. And this allows you to experiment with things. And if people don't like it, you can just shoot it in the head and move on to something else. If they really like it, you can double down on it. Or if they like it, but like a slightly different version, you can pivot and change what you're doing. But having an environment like this with feature toggles where you can do gradual releases or do A-B testing releases gives you an ability that you probably didn't have before uh, from an interactive with your user standpoint. Well, the other thing is, and, and this is the thing that I like, I've also heard it called experiment-driven development. Yep. And effectively, uh, the idea is, is yeah, it's then not, well, we're going to see if this feature makes sense because that whole hypothesis doesn't make any sense. We're going to wave our hands at it and we're going to build the feature because we want it. That's what that means. Mm-hmm. And instead, what we're talking about is we're saying, okay, well, I need to increase uh, user engagement by at least 5% in order to meet these other targets in the business. Yep. And so my theory is, is that if I add this feature, then the people who are using, who have that feature are going to use the application 5% more. Yep. That's a good example. One of those. Let me give you another one. This is actually a great story that came out probably eight months ago on the awesome radio lab podcast. And it was about Facebook and it was about, and I can't remember the year. I think it was 2013 between Christmas day and new year's day. People posted more photos to Facebook than all of Instagram. And they had a problem because they have this thing at Facebook where you can flag photos as being offensive. And more than a million of those photos were flagged as offensive. And they went back and started looking at them and it was like pictures of puppies. Oh, I hate puppies. 
and these things that were really did not seem offensive at all, so they couldn't figure out why. And, more, and the big problem from a business standpoint they had, they had committed to sorting through all these pictures to make sure they weren't offensive and, and removing the inoffensive one, and they just literally didn't have enough staff to handle the volume of pictures they were getting. But Facebook has a really good experimental setup for being able to deploy stuff. And so they started asking more nuanced questions about the picture. They just didn't say flag it as offensive. They started asking questions why. And they found out that puppies were offensive because they had been lost in a divorce. And people didn't want to be reminded about that. Oh, man. And, and so they kept asking more and more nuanced questions. And what they'd do is put out several different versions of the questionnaire and the one that gave them better results, they doubled down on that and kept doing that. And before long, they had it down to a few thousand pictures per cycle and they could easily hire enough staff to handle that many truly offensive pictures. But without having this platform for experimentation, it would have taken them a really, really long time to figure out why people were flagging these things that they didn't believe were offensive as being offensive. So that's the real advantage of having an environment that allows you to do this kind of experimentation is you can engage in a way that you've never been able to engage before. I like it. So one of the things that I've I've been working on a team that's been doing feature branching and it's going, been going pretty well. You know, we keep our the features that we want to do that we actually merge pretty pretty small. That's the practice that we've developed. But one thing I do like is the concept of a, a, a pull request. So you, 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 you have a request, people look at it. How do you re- replicate that when you're, com- when you're committing to trunk? Well, a pull request is basically a voluntary ambush. A pull request is I'm ready for you to ambush me now versus being ambushed by surprise. So it's still a merge. So you, you're still dealing with a merge conflict there. And so the, the same thing is true with the feature branch. The longer that code has been out of sync with one another, the worse the merge conflict is going to be. And so I actually view feature toggles as an alternative to pull requests. I think pull requests are really just a, a different way of doing feature branching in some um, ways. Yeah, that, that's, that's part of how you get it to the merge, but the benefit <coughs> is that people are looking at it. So how, how do you replicate that in the, the, the trunk-based development? Well, in trunk-based development, the code's all there, uh, just under feature toggles. Okay, it, it's it's there, but as a framework for to get the other people on your team, understanding what you're doing, checking for bugs, doing a code review. There's nothing specifically built into feature toggles to facilitate code reviews or anything like that. You just have to do that as part of, you know, when you decide to turn this feature on, if you want to do some sort of code review, you can do it at that time. That's an advantage that pull requests have. It's a, it's an, an, an isolated change. You can see the entire change set as one thing. You don't get that, that unified view in a feature toggle kind of world. Okay. So I've been traveling the world trying to talk people out of doing feature branching and doing how's some that, How's that working for you? It's actually working pretty well once you have a chance to talk to people about it because I have this theory that I've developed over time, and this theory is that meta work is more interesting than work, that a lot of places, the way they use version control is way more about meta work than it is work because here's the observation. So I see a lot of developers and that when you really boil the job down to its essence, I mean, everybody's going for Christmas soon, so they're going to be talking to their grandparents. And when you really boil it down, it's I take things from websites and put them in databases. And I take them from databases and make them appear on websites. And that's not all that terribly exciting if you've done that for 20 or 30 times. You know what developers do when their day job is boring? 
they invent cool puzzles to solve so that they have a really <laughs> meaty, cool puzzle to solve when they come into work every day. And that's the way I see version control being used more often than a way to make things work more efficiently. It's the cool puzzle that we've built that we all have to interact with on a daily basis. Uh, and not really about making things better, but kind of a, as an, an end to it unto itself. So that's the thing I tell people to be careful about is make sure that all your engineering practices are pulling in the same direction, that you're not overly optimized on one thing and it's really killing your productivity somewhere else because you're spending a giant amount of time doing merges over and over again or something like that. Try to look at the overall throughput of how efficient you are from an engineering standpoint and don't, don't try to micro-optimize, try to macro-optimize. That makes sense. So yeah. I, I'd like your comment about the A-B test because the team I've been working with has been doing A-B testing in a feature branch environment. And yep. we developed a lot of the same practices you talked about by you know putting the code in there, make sure it's tested. You can do the A-B tests and you can run tests in both cases. But we also advocate for, okay, we need to clean this up when the test runs. And that was a huge thing we had to advocate for. Yep. I forgot my question. <laughs> I think you were going to say that feature toggles are awesome and you're never going to do feature branching ever again. <laughs> well, um, I, I still enjoy the, you know, the feature branch workflow. I'm finding it, you can definitely reduce a lot of the downsides by keeping your feature branches small if it takes. So that's the real trick. So if, if I were going to do feature branching, so really, really short-lived feature branching, we're not so mad at. It's the problem of getting really long-lived feature branching. Because basically, so the way to think about this is the entire time you're living on the feature branch, you've disabled continuous integration. So that's just something that's not happening anymore. And the longer you the longer you live in that world, the more painful it's going to be to rejoin that world. So what if you have your CI server running on the feature branch and you've just merged or rebased it? You can do that and just deal, but you're going to hit the same merge conflicts over and over and over again. If, Whereas with if you're doing – so the beautiful thing about feature toggles is you merge the code at the earliest possible time you could merge it, which is the first time you get a conflict between those two. So any other practice is going to cause you more pain than doing a feature toggle. Yeah, one thing that my continuous integration system uses – I've been using Circle CI mm -hmm. um, is that it's pretty good about actually running those tests because it's web, so there's no real build step. Um, yep. it's pretty good about running those tests whenever I commit to a separate branch. So it'll mm -hmm. say, this is the master branch, and then this is the other thing branch. Yep. Um, you can, I mean, in a deployment pipeline, you can set up a whole suite of tests and other things to run on each branch. But, but I still have to manually merge it. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. You'll eventually have to pay that, that price to merge it. Whereas if you're doing feature toggles, you merge it as eagerly as you possibly can. Right. And that's really the thing about feature toggles that ultimately, I mean, it's, it's not the perfect, I mean, I'm, I'm advocating for it here. It's not the perfect solution to every problem. You know, it certainly does um, add complexity to your code, which is why we encourage you to take it out as quickly as possible. But it just allows uh, so many other nice things to happen, like opportunistic refactoring becomes a lot easier. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, we can argue that it causes the least amount of merge headaches you're ever going to have on a project if you use that because you hit merge conflicts as eagerly as possible. Right. Yeah, I should add, I've done trunk-based development for, for years, and I've always, I've enjoyed it. You know, get stuff in, commit as fast as possible, and get that feedback right away, you know, multiple times a day. And that blows people's minds, but, you know, it's, a, it's an effective way to work, even though 
most of my team-based stuff is doing feature branches. You know, trunk-based stuff uh, definitely works well. Well, I, I do a lot of these continuous delivery workshops all over the place. And, and it's interesting when I bring this topic up because most of the reaction I get from this is either, oh, my God, it's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I can't believe anybody would do that. Or uh, why are you talking about something that's so old that we've been doing for a decade now? <laughs> it seems like there's very little in between there. You look at big companies like Facebook. So that Radiolab episode is really fascinating because he talks about doing it's really about experimenting on a platform like Facebook and they are running up to 20 experiments at any given time in different regions for different purposes and the interviewer asked him what's the chance as a standard Facebook user what's the chance I've been in one of your experiments and he said oh absolutely 100% you're probably in three of them right now and don't even realize it because that's the way really big scale mature code bases work is they do they don't try to do branches and try to manage you know 20 different branches and what's going on there they do feature toggles where everything is already integrated and they just turn on toggles for different purposes there's a good example of this how how facebook rolled out chat when they decided to let facebook users chat with one another uh, they did a, a continuous delivery practice called dark launching where they launch, dark launched all the code on all their servers underneath a feature toggle and then they toggled on that feature per region so they could look at the the scale problems uh, they hit New Zealand first and then Australia, which is the first big scale test. And they basically followed the sun across the world until they got to the east coast of the U.S., figured out that, yep, we're going to go ahead and turn on the U.S. So they toggled on all the U.S. regions. So over the course of 24 hours, they rolled out this new feature very slowly over time and monitored continuously to make sure it wasn't going to overwhelm their infrastructure. That's a good example of kind of modern DevOps plus uh, engineering practices working together. So... I did have a question about how to implement feature toggles, especially like unit testing, because when I encountered you know, feature toggles way back when, it was in C++, we did if defs, and yep. it was a nightmare, and I ran away screaming. I yep. vowed never to do that again. What are some ways that we can get this code tested? Um, I was so going to ask this, too. Okay, so that's a good that's a good question. So if you're in the C plus plus world, uh, those are build time feature toggles. So if death, so which means you're literally compiling different versions of the code base. If you're in uh, more modern environments like Java, for example, there are a bunch of uh, feature toggle frameworks for Java that are runtime feature toggles, which means you you can actually get a console and toggle them on and off as the as it's running. And this is the thing that allows you to do like partial releases and other things like that because there's a front servlet that sits in front of your application that just decides do they get this toggled on or off and you just interact with that servlet. But with so, uh, on this show, our listeners are in the dark ages as far as any of that. Yeah. So, uh, well, so build time feature toggles with if defs and things like that. The tricky thing there is you basically need a deployment pipeline per feature because you're building a different version of the code base every time. If you build it in to be more dynamic, so for example, when your application starts up, it reads a, a text file that has name value pairs in it and then decides dynamically to turn those things on and off. That's actually an easier environment to do unit testing in because your unit test can also read your feature toggle file and decide, should I try to test this or not based on whether that toggle is turned on or not or not. That's trickier in the build time feature toggle world because then you basically have to have two sets of unit tests, one for the feature on and one for the feature off. So what you're saying is that in your test suite, you can essentially say, run the tests with variations on these different sets of toggles. And so it just runs your test suite four times, essentially, yeah. with, with the two that you have in there on and off and on and off. 
Yep, you could set it up to do that, particularly with runtime feature toggles, because you just run the test and then tell the framework, okay, turn this feature on now, now run this other test. So runtime feature toggles are a lot easier to deal with from that standpoint. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've been doing similar code to feature toggles, implementing A-B tests, and we ended up doing things where we do a lot of it in code because in iOS world, we don't, really don't have a lot of frameworks. We don't have the maturity of uh, the Java world. But yep. we've been doing a lot of things where you know, we decided, well, A-B tests are first-class citizens of our code. So we, we, code, we code the classes that actually that deal with the A-B thing, tests. So. The beautiful thing about feature toggles, though, is as long as you can read external configuration and as long as you have an if statement, you're good. Mm-hmm. So it's actually quite easy to build a, a dirt simple uh, feature toggle framework into something like iOS. And a really common thing, of course, now is to have an iOS app that's talking to a back end that's basically a JSON pump. Well, you could certainly make that back end uh, deliver feature toggle information to the front end if you wanted to. Uh, definitely, yeah. I think there are a number of frameworks that do similar things like that. Yep, absolutely. It's not hard to implement at all. So that's one of the nice things about this. It's, it's very easy to get working in virtually any platform. There's a relatively ancient uh, web integration platform called Web Methods that I recently got feature toggles working on because it could read external configuration and it had an if statement. So the barrier to entry is really low. <laughs> so in your unit test, do you have separate tests that just don't run based on the feature flag? So you have the feature yep. flag around the tests and the code? Yep, exactly. So there's a little more of a testing burden. So again, this is another uh, reason that you don't want a lot of these at any given time. You tend to toggle away chunks of code, not, you know, individual lines of code all over the place. Mm-hmm. If you have one takeaway from this show, clean up yeah. your feature toggles. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Hygiene is important. So one of the things we say in the continuous delivery world is you must be this tall before you start doing this thing. And that's one of those things is you have to be able to uh, uh, have enough discipline to clean up things like old feature toggles or your code will get messier and messier because you're just imposing more and more technical debt on it. Having lived through that mess, yes. <laughs> yep. So so what are some of the other things that we can do to add efficiency to our engineering process besides trunk-based development and feature toggles? Well, certainly there's a lot of stuff in the continuous delivery world about automatic machine provisioning. Uh, so that's another one of the things that we try to do in the continuous delivery world is try to get your code to a realistic production-like environment as quickly as possible. Now, a lot of times that means running on you know simulators and things like that, but trying to get it in as production-like a world as possible as quickly as you can so that you have less things that you have to fight about. Uh, as you go forward. Another thing that we talk about in this world is uh, another thing that I think projects don't do well is try to target the engineering practices around tests toward the target audience that benefits from them. So let's, for example, look at unit tests versus functional tests. We make this distinction in the continuous delivery world. Unit tests are really about structure and getting the structures correct and making a foundation for being able to refactor code and other kinds of code hygiene stuff. Functional tests in the continuous delivery world are the ones that capture things like requirements. And so there are some functional testing libraries like Cucumber, behavior-driven development frameworks that people use to capture requirements uh, versus capturing scaffolding. So when you look at those, just say that you have those two kinds of tests, although some projects very often have more levels of testing, user acceptance testing, et cetera. But let's just look at those two as a, a good example. So unit tests are important because they are part of the developer's normal workflow. So the normal workflow for a developer is you check some code in and you make sure all the unit tests pass before you start working on the next thing. Mm-hmm. 
What that means is that the target audience for unit tests are developers, and the the best thing you can do for them is to make those unit tests really, really fast. So speed is more important even than comprehensiveness. And so one of the things that we'll do very often in unit tests is say, okay, for unit tests, never reach out of process. Don't go reach for values in databases. Don't go after web endpoints, et cetera. Mock and stub everything in, inward so that we get really super fast unit tests because that's really beneficial to the audience that consumes those tests. But on the same projects, we say on functional tests, never mock or stub anything. They'll get real values because we're trying to verify requirements. We're willing to make a much uh, longer time hit on functional tests and get the much deeper level of verification than we are on unit tests. And so that's an example of honing the engineering practices around things like tests toward the target audience and how they benefit from it. So I was on a project not too long ago, for example, it's a Ruby on Rails project, and the unit test ran in about 41 seconds, and the functional test ran in about five minutes. Uh-huh. And we did exactly that strategy because now the developers have the fastest feedback loop they can possibly have on being able to get to work again. Uh, but then because we're harming the verification there, we're beefing it up on the back end. So that's an example of honing uh the engineering effort toward which audience benefits from it. And we actually do that a lot for testing in the continuous delivery world is look at who's consuming these tests and how can we optimize that to make it the most beneficial for that audience. Another good example of this is we're really big fans of being able to automatically provision environments using Puppet or Chef or Ansible or one Mm -hmm. of the DevOps tools. And so a really common practice is to uh, make it so that if you have some sort of manual exploratory QA function, that uh, so one of the big problems you have in a lot of companies is, you know, QA says, okay, we're ready for the next build that we need to verify. And they come to the developers and developers say, okay, uh, we'll get you a new build, but I need a developer, a live chicken, and a voodoo doll. Just give me two hours and I, I promise <laughs> I'll get you to up that you can run your QA stuff on. Uh, have you well, been we working like- on the same teams that I have? <laughs> <laughs> the voodoo doll is critical. That's right. Well, you know, it just won't work otherwise. We want to provision environments automatically so that you can click a button somewhere and have an environment spin up so people can get to work on it. And this is actually a really good example of this thing that Mike Nygaard, who's really well known in the DevOps space, uh, refers to as a consulting judo. You know, judo as a martial art uses your opponent's weight against them. So Mike found himself as the de facto CTO of this big box retailer, and he was trying to convince them that they should invest more effort into these DevOps practices, and, and it was just falling on deaf ears. And so what Mike did was found a pain point. And the pain point of this particular organization was they never had enough QA environments. People were always fighting over them. People would try to share them, and then they'd get conflicts with each other. There was all this this messiness around QA environments. And so he used that as a way to convince the powers that be to let him automate the creation of QA environments. And that showed them 
that A, it was way easier than they thought it was going to be. And now all of a sudden, all this noise and grief that was happening just kind of melted away because anybody could get a QA environment just by pressing a button. So this is a really good example of this mantra that I talk about in continuous delivery world. This is particularly true when you have developers who are trying to convince operations people they need to change the way they do stuff, or you're going to your QA people or your DBAs and trying to lecture them about how to do their job better. You should stop doing that. And my mantra is demonstration trumps discussion. Don't talk about it. You need to show them how their world is going to be a better place. Michael walked around that place until he was blue in the face trying to explain to people how the world would be at a better place if you could just spin up environments more easily. But until he had the opportunity to demonstrate that to them, he didn't get any traction. But as soon as he showed them how it worked, everybody got on board right away. So that was demonstration trumps discussion. Discussion. Yeah. There we go. Meme Wrangler in action right here. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I really like it, though. I mean... There were a couple of, pl- I mean, that's why Skunk Works works, right? Yep, absolutely. So there were so many places that I worked at where it was, yeah, we need a continuous integration server and we need this, that, and the other. And, you know, we, we want to be able to refactor these couple of different things. And it was always, well, no, you know, we, we're not going to pay for the time that it's going to take to do that. Or why should we fork over, uh, you know, so much money for a continuous integration system? Or why should we fork over for this tool or that tool when you seem to be doing your work just fine the way you are? But yep. when we could actually go in and say, hey, look, we kind of set this up on our own and it's given us this kind of increase in speed, efficiency, productivity. It got this and this and this problem out of our hair and now we can move ahead twice as fast. They were like, oh, we'll pay for that. Absolutely. So continuous delivery is one of those things where operations people and DBAs and QA people are saying that this is just an example of developers wanting to steal their jobs, but that's not true at all. The problem is their job has started to suck so much, it's starting to make my job suck, and that's untenable. So I'm going to have to fix the things that are broken about your job so that it doesn't end up breaking my job. And that's where demonstration Trump's discussion comes in because it's really hard to talk people out of, you know, they've been doing it the same way for a decade, but you show them how this is a much better place and it's much easier to change their mind about it. Absolutely. Well, and especially if it's a pain point that you both have shared from one end or the other. For example, I worked at a company where, the deployment to production or staging even was super painful. And so when we found ways to short circuit some of the things that the operations guys had to do, for example, packaging up gems, because security was a big deal. We were dealing with government data. And so there were all these rules around what we could and couldn't do, even with our test data. Mm-hmm. And so by, and so they couldn't, they couldn't just gem install something on the server. They couldn't just use bundler to put it up there. They yep. actually had to basically put it into a RPM package and mm-hmm. then push it up to the server and then have it installed that way. And so by creating processes that made some of those things easier, it made our lives easier, but it also made their lives easier. And it wasn't that we were trying to save the jo- their, steal their job, and they never felt that way. It was just, we're tired of begging for this, yep. and we know you're busy. And yep. it just it, it totally came through, and, and it worked out nicely that way. And the beautiful thing about automating something like that is th- this is this constant pain you feel from doing that manually over and over. Once you automate that away, that pain just evaporates. 
And now all of a sudden that time that you spent doing that manual thing over and over, you freed up to do something else. Yep. So, so that's one of the things that we really aggressively look for on projects. And in fact, that's where the continuous delivery book came from. It was written by two thought workers and we are really, uh, adamant about looking around on projects and thinking about, you know, what, what could be, how could we automate that away? What can make that more efficient? You know, uh, that just frees up more and more time to do the interesting parts of your job, not the mundane parts of your job. So ThoughtWorks, I think, I believe you folks work on some rather large projects, but I also want to just throw out there that a lot of the projects that I work on are comparatively much smaller. I mean, we're Mm -hmm. talking about two or three developers. We're talking about, uh, maybe a few hundred thousand lines of code. You know, it's, it's not a, it's not this giant project. It's a, sm- you know, it's a smaller project and things are pretty modular so that we can pull things apart and put them back together where we need to. And even then, a lot of these practices, now I, I, I'll admit we still do some feature branching, um, but it's mostly trunk based development. We haven't done the feature toggles. I'm definitely looking forward to trying that. Mm-hmm. But some of these other things with the way that we approach our continuous integration and the way that we are now looking at continuous deployment, it just takes these pain points away. And usually they're the pain points where I'm the bottleneck because I've kind of held on to control of those things so that my developers and other folks that are working with and for me don't have to worry about that stuff. And that's for me, what it's really about is some of the pain is going to be the way that I interact with the code versus the way another developer interacts with the code. But a lot of it really is the way that I do things and the way and whether or not I'm willing to give up control. And therefore I need to automate that away so that it's not as much of an issue. Yep. And, and, you know, that's small projects are slippery slope because every project starts out small. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's, but at some point you realize, man, I've been doing this over and over and over. So my, I wrote a book a long time ago called The Productive Programmer. And one of my mantras in The Productive Programmer was every time you find yourself doing something for the third time, it's time to automate it. Because if you do it manually three times, you're going to do it a thousand times. Yeah, I heard an interview on The Eventual Millionaire with Jamie Tardy, and this is a business podcast. She interviews millionaires and talks to them about basically what makes them millionaires. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I the, think it's I, the million dollars. Yeah, but it's, it's how did you get there, right? And how can, how can the audience as eventual millionaires get to be millionaires? Mm-hmm. And she had a productivity guy on there and he jumped in and he basically said, um, that you should be willing to spend up to 30 times. And I've said this on other shows, 30 times the amount of time it takes you to do a job once to either automate it or delegate it and teach somebody else to do it. And mm-hmm. the reason is, is because if it's something you do every week in a year, you will have done it 50 times. And yep. if you spent 30 times the amount of time to show or teach somebody else to do it or automate it, then you've saved yourself. You've netted another 20 times, whatever that time is. So if it's a half hour, that's 10 hours that you saved that year. And next year it's 50 hours. If you do it every day or every work day, you know, and let's say there are roughly 200 days in, or work days or 250 work days in a year. I mean that it, it's that much more, right? Cause then it's 220 times the amount of time this year and 250 times next year. And yep. so, yeah, if, if you're doing it over and over again, it makes a ton of sense to look for ways to automate it because Eventually, you're going to be more efficient because it's just a push of a button now instead of running a script and babysitting it. Well, and, and exactly at that point, I was on projects before where the unit test took 20 minutes to run, and we removed that down to 15 minutes. 
So if every developer, so if you got 10 developers and every mm-hmm. developer checks in 10 times a day, you saved a huge chunk of time now by just that little tweak. Seems like insignificant, but you start adding it up over time, and it becomes a huge amount of, of time and money. Well, the other thing is David Brady from the Ruby Rogues podcast has said over and over again that his threshold for running tests is his Twitter threshold. In other words, how long can I sit here and watch these tests run before I'm over on Twitter? And then you're not just saving the other minute and a half that you spent running the test, but the other 10 minutes it takes for him to goof off on Twitter and then come back and get back to work. Exactly. Now, way back in the day, I used to teach classes on C++. I, I noticed this guy, you know, C++ compile times are brutal. And I noticed this guy, every time we kick off a compile, he was doing something really intricate. And I realized he was doing these little origami animals. So this was his defense mechanism for being a C++ coder. Because every time he'd kick <laughs> off the compiler, he'd build little this little zoo of origami animals there <laughs> to keep himself occupied. He must have been an origami master. <laughs> he was by that time. Yeah, there was a, there's an XKCD um, that I've seen co-opted just a couple of different things where two guys are standing on their office chairs fighting sorts. And, of course, it's stick figures and stuff because it's super high quality. But anyway, yeah, the boss walks by and is like, so what are you doing? And they're like waiting for the build or uh, the one I saw for Rubius was bundle install. You know, while that was slow, you know, and, and yeah, you, I mean, you're totally off in Neverland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's easy to get there. Oh, yeah. If you've got stuff that runs a really long time. It's easy to get really distracted and wander away. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny too, because I hear so many entrepreneurs or sometimes programmers that say, I swear I have ADD. And that's not necessarily the case. I mean, I'm sure some people, you know, you could diagnose them. I, I sometimes wonder if I have it. My son has ADHD, but that really what it boils down to is I have so many things going on that mm-hmm. all it takes is one notification to pop up on my computer when I have some downtime and I'm gone. Yep. <laughs> that's a good motivation to turn all notifications off on your computer. Yeah. Which is one of my pieces of advice from Productive Programmer. Yeah, that's another thing I have to... I have a beef with you now, Neil, because I was going to write a book <laughs> called The Productive Programmer, and now I have to change the title. <laughs> yep, I beat you to that one. <laughs> now I have to get creative. Yeah. All right, well, we've been talking here for about an hour. Are there any critical things that we haven't talked over that we should go over? I'm sure there are a million productivity tips we could give. But is there maybe one more that is just, uh, if you're not doing this, it will change your life kind of thing? So one of the things that I would encourage everybody to do, so uh, I'm a consultant, and there's this phenomenon that we recognize called the out-of-town consultant effect, which is if you rode in an airplane to get to a meeting, you automatically have more credibility than the people who rode in cars to get to that meeting. I can vouch for that. But there is a little bit of truth to that. Because so there's a famous story about boiling frogs that was in the Pragmatic Programmer book that apparently if you want to boil a frog, you can't throw him in a pot of boiling water uh, because he'll jump out. But if you put him in a pot of cold water and turn it up slowly, he'll cook without realizing it. Turns out that's not true because frogs are not that stupid. But (laughs) But big companies are that stupid. And so as the out of town consultant, you can come in and go, you realize all you frogs are boiling here. And they go, oh, yeah, we haven't noticed that because they're not looking at it with an objective eye. So my best piece of advice for everyone listening to this is show up at work tomorrow and act like an out-of-town consultant. Look at all the little processes you're doing with an objective eye and say, 
Why are we doing that? Is that the best way to do that? And could we just remove that step entirely or is there a much better way to do that? The continuous delivery book has a great suggestion exercise, which is to go look at, and there's this thing called a value stream map, which is just a fancy way of saying lines and boxes where you delineate the length of times of things. And so what they say is go look at your current deployment process from the time that you start working on code until it's available to your users and delineate each step that your code goes through and ask yourself, what could I do to make that way more efficient and shorten the amount of time it spends in all those engineering practices? And if you look at that with an objective eye, you can probably find a whole bunch of low-hanging fruit that you could either change or just get rid of entirely or change the order of to greatly enhance the productivity of, uh, of your engineering team. Yeah, that's interesting. I can also say that uh, when I moved over, so that last full-time job that I had, I was just talking about it. When I got there, I basically came in and said, you know, we used continuous integration with uh, Jenkins when I was at the other place. And they kind of talked about it, but they hadn't implemented it. And so just me coming in and saying, I've done this before, and I think it would really benefit us here, and here's why. I mean, just having that perspective as a new person, not even that I had flown in, it, mm-hmm. it made a huge difference because all of a sudden it was a different perspective where somebody actually had some proof that something would pay off. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm pretty sure that I've seen this work out, even with junior people in a new position on a team of senior people. They come in and they start making suggestions and backing it up with their experience. And you can have a tremendous effect uh, just by coming in and kind of being that set of fresh eyes. So yep. don't just count on it just from the standpoint of, oh, I'm been, I've been paid big bucks to show up here or from the standpoint of I've been doing this forever and so I know the right ways to do it. If you're new but you know something works that they're not doing, see if you can get them to try it. Absolutely. Uh, we try to take a, uh, suggestions from all corners at ThoughtWorks. Uh, there's no a role within ThoughtWorks that feels like they're not allowed to make a suggestion to make things better. It's really hard to foster that, but I'll tell you, it pays off big time. Yep. I remember the first time I was a tech lead on a project and a junior developer changed one of the lines of code that I checked in the day before. I first bristled at it, but then I looked at it and realized he had made an improvement, so I shut up and got over my day. Yep. All right. Well, before we get to picks, what are the best ways for people to follow up with what you're working on these days, Neil? Uh, so I'm doing a bunch of stuff around software architecture and how it kind of intersects with continuous delivery. So the continuous delivery book uh, is certainly uh, where a lot of the stuff comes from. Uh, my website, neilford.com, is where all my upcoming appearances and the most recent videos and books and things show up. I've just started working on a book about uh, evolutionary software architecture, so I'm spending a lot of time working on that. Uh, More to come about that in the near future. All right. Uh, Well, let's go ahead and get to picks. Jane, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I've got one pick. It's kind of an obvious pick. A lot of people who were listening to the show got an Apple TV for free when they sent them out. I wasn't on that list, but I did buy one when they were released, went to the store, picked one up like an animal. But... uh, (laughs) I'm enjoying it. So we use it for streaming Netflix, and I've got the NHL package so I can watch hockey every day, which is fantastic, except over Christmas for some reason. But anyway. Is that a real sport? It it is. Um, In some places, the water freezes, and they can skate on it with these things called ice skates. So it does exist. Apparently, water doesn't freeze in Minnesota anymore, but um, (laughs) not this year. 
anyway, but no, I'm liking it. Uh, I previously used an Xbox for basically watching Netflix and NHL and that kind of stuff, and it was a really tedious interface, so I'm glad to not have to pay Xbox Live. So I'm pretty happy with my Apple TV. So if you haven't, did you didn't get one for free from Apple, um, and you do like to use your TV for stuff, I recommend the Apple TV. I'm pretty happy with it. Very nice. I've got a couple of picks. I don't know if I picked this last week or not, so I'm just going to mention it. Uh, my Pebble Time Steel. Uh, so I have that. We did an episode with, I think it was with Neil, where we talked about the information on the watch and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've definitely had you on a couple of times because I, I think we also had you on for the tech radar. Anyway, it now has health tracking data, which was the one thing that I was like, man, I really wish that I had health tracking data. And that was my, I wish I had an Apple watch instead of a Pebble Time. But now I have that on my watch. Now I'm sure it's not the same as it is on the Apple watch, but it also costs $400 less. So um, if you're looking at smartwatches, I am now even more delighted with my Pebble Time Steel. Battery life is a good week between charges. Anyway, it's awesome. Um, when I moved my arm too quickly in the movie theater, though, I went and saw Star Wars yesterday. It does light up. <laughs> but anyway, super happy with it. So uh, definitely going to pick that. I also just want to put out there uh, for this show, I am doing an iOS remote conf next year in April. So if you're into iOS development, which you probably are if you listen to the show, the call for proposals is open till sometime in March. I'm probably going to move that up because people want to see the talks earlier. And I think it, it helps get more people excited about the conference. If you want to speak, uh, yeah, definitely get that in, uh, by the end of February, early March. And then, uh, the early bird tickets are on sale as well. Uh, they're a hundred dollars a piece. The price doubles when early bird ends. So you definitely want to be getting those tickets now as well. You can also go to allremoteconfs.com and get a package of tickets. If you see some of the other ones in there, like Git or robots or things like that, you can get a package of tickets and then you can use that to get into multiple conferences. So uh, anyway, go check that out. The full list of conferences is at allremotecomps.com. And uh, yeah, those are my picks. Neil, what are your picks? So I've got a couple. I was talking about feature flags, that kind of stuff here. So I will point you to a website called launchdarkly.com, which is feature toggles as a service. So you can uh, actually uh, have these guys deploy your app and they'll manage feature flags for you, which looks pretty slick. I haven't tried it yet. Just discovered this, but it looks really slick uh, if you're into that uh, feature toggle world. And the other really slick thing that I found recently, this is a JavaScript thing, but it is so cool. It's a graspjs.com. It's a command line utility that lets you do search and replace refactorings in your JavaScript code, but it'll let you do like really funky placeholders and that kind of stuff. So you can do these really amazing structural refactorings to JavaScript uh, as the, the most powerful kind of refactoring JavaScript code I've seen. And it's a command line tool. So it's very slick called graspjs.com. Nice. All right. Well, I think we've covered as much as we're going to cover here. Thanks for coming again, Neil. My pleasure. We'll go ahead and wrap up this show and we'll catch y'all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. <laughs>